Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. And in this episode, we will discuss the concept of income itself and then talk about active versus passive income. What are the main types? We look at definitions and look at some of the examples of each type of income. Then I want to discuss this concept called income per unit time. I learned this from an anaesthetist and it was completely changed my view on income. Now the anaesthetists are the people that keep you alive in the operating room while an operation is happening so they often don't get the credit they probably deserve. So shout out to all the anaesthetists who are listening. We can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. If you're anything like me, you will understand that us medical professionals often have unique financial affairs from taxation minimization requirements, multiple entities for accounting, or asset protection for the extra risks we take on. Altus Financial understands these issues and more. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps, or you're after advice about buying into a practice, Altus Financial is for medical professionals who want to feel good about their finances. To speak with Altus Financial about your situation, click the link in the show notes or head to altusfinancial.com.au forward slash M3M. Now, let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't forget to contact me via Twitter or Facebook. Now, before we go on to the main topic of income, I had a question from Nettie who asks, Dev, recommended reviewing insurance policies at least once a year. I would love to hear in the podcast on your techniques or steps on how to be more assertive with the insurers. I'm up to episode 47. And since I started listening, I've referred your podcast to five other friends and I'm very grateful to have listened to you. Keep up the good work. Now, that's very lovely feedback. Thank you very much, Nettie. And thanks for listening and sharing the pods with other people. Um, So the more you share, the more people get access to it. And of course, that means the more people actually listen to it as well. Now, here are my principles when reviewing insurance policies. Every year, I negotiate my insurance policies with my insurer. The best time to do this for me is at renewal time because it adds some pressure and the insurers then know that you're actually quite serious about potentially renewing it or even stopping it and swapping it to another insurer. Now, there are two insurance policies I do not routinely negotiate. They are private health because I'm part of an older generation of policies and they're always better than the newer generation of policies. And I'm very careful with health insurance due to the exclusion criteria, which keep changing. Now, I see this in real life because when I treat patients who think they're covered under private health or ambulance cover, when in fact it's a restricted policy and they're actually not covered, so really have to pay attention to the fine print. So I do not regularly negotiate my health insurance. Now, the second type of policies that I do not regularly negotiate, in fact, I haven't done it for a long time, is personal insurance, income protection, life, 
TPD or trauma. For me, it's all outside of super. I do not negotiate because the current rules and policies are a little bit worse off than when I first joined many, many years ago. So in terms of other policies like car, home, building, contents, etc., this is what I do. I try and maximise my time when I negotiate these policies. So I tend to call when I'm driving and I have long drives most days of the week or when I'm exercising. I do about an hour, hour and a half of walking every other day. So that's when I tend to ring up these people and negotiate for my insurance policies. Now, the reason I do that is because I want to do things using my time as, as, as effectively and as efficiently as possible. So I don't want to just waste time negotiating with insurance policies while I'm doing nothing. So that's why I tend to use my time as effectively as possible. You may want to do it in your own room, private, dedicated time, etc. whereas I tend to do it while I'm doing something else. Now, I guess the other thing I want them to think is I'm really busy. So I'm kind of in a hurry most days of the week. I don't want them to think I have all the time in the world, which I frankly don't. So my time, I feel, is more important than their time. So I really, really try and make sure that I get the most bang for my buck while I'm doing something else. Now, in terms of negotiation, I have a figure in mind and I usually want them to price match or keep the same price as last year rather than increase it or beat the price. Now, I'm not aggressive but I'm assertive. So I get straight to the point. I'm not here to talk them into something. I just want to get my job done and get the best price and get out of there. So I say, hello, this is Dev Raga. Been a customer for X number of years. In my case, let's say 10 years or so. My car and home policy is up for renewal and I got my renewal notice, which is a bit too high. So can you please review this and get me a better price? Now, I do not tell them I have another quote off my sleep unless they specifically ask me. And um, I do try and get another quote most of the time with a comparable policy. Now, then obviously they go back and they sort of do their own little due diligence and plug in some numbers and they sort of ask you a few questions to make sure your policy is up to date and is current. Then I use something called the three times principle. Now, again, it's a principle which is I kind of made it up. It's my principle, so it may or may not work for you. I ask three times, and that's generally the rule of thumb that I do for most negotiating processes, particularly with insurance. So when they come back to me after I've done my intro with a quote, while I'm on the phone, I immediately say no. I don't accept it. I tell them, look, that's great, and thanks for doing better, but I think it can be even lower. And I would much rather stick with you than change to another provider. Now, most of the time when they come back to you the first time, it is not a great deal. It's probably just 10 bucks off or 50 bucks off or 100 bucks off, whatever it is. It's not the best deal. If they come back to you and they match your price or they do better than your comparable quote and better than the existing premium, then you may want to take that up at that time. At the first strike, you've won the deal. But I find in my experience, they do not match it or they do not come to my game after the first time. So then they go back and they say, let's say what else we can do. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they, you know, potentially sort of argue with you to say, look, this is the best we can do, etc. Take it or leave it. And if that's the case, I leave. Now, when they do come back the second time, if they do, I say no again. I say, that's fantastic. It's a much more measured no, 
but I do have a quote for X amount of dollars, which is better. Can you perhaps match it or come close to that? And often that quote is cheaper with a better policy with another provider. That's when I use my quote up my sleeve. And when they come back to me the third time, if it's close or price matched, I take it. Now, I thank the customer service consultant and I also remind them I'm taking this, but perhaps it's a bit undeserved. So I don't want the quote that I received, um, you know, I don't want them to think that that's the best thing that I've ever done in my life for them for me as well. Um, I always want to make sure I tell them, look, the other company, although a little bit higher price with their quote, had better coverage. So I'll take your deal for now. Not really that happy, but thank you very much for trying your very best. I get what I want. I leave and I may not give them the impression that they did a great job. Now I'm happy to compromise and I accept the deal and I just say, thank you very much and I leave, right? So I don't really tend to give them the satisfaction of winning me over. Now, here's the deal. Dev Raga is not an arsehole, all right? So just hold your horses. I don't encourage people to lie when they get insurance quotes because that's wrong, but there is an element of bluffing, so to speak. It's like playing poker. So essentially, they want to come back to you with a deal. They want your business and you want to get out of there with the best deal possible. So don't get me wrong, I'm actually trying to do this as assertively as possible and not as aggressively as possible, right? So, you know, I work hard for my money and I'm sure you work hard for your money as well. So negotiating a deal is like a battle. I want to keep more of my money. They want to keep more of their money. It's a tug of war. So you can be assertive and you can be nice about it and be fair about it. So that's my three-step process when I negotiate. The first time you go through these processes, it might make you feel a bit uncomfortable and that's okay. But the more you do it, the more comfortable you are, the more systems-based approach you get to do, and therefore the more likely you're going to be successful in getting a better deal. Now, you may not be successful the very first time, but I assure you the more practice you get, the more assertive you get, you're likely to be more successful than not. Now, there's no such thing, in my opinion, as loyalty when it comes to money. It's always about what value I get. And, you know, for example, the insurance company that I'm with, their customer call center is located in Australia and not overseas. To me, that's really important. So I may be happy to pay a little bit of premium compared to some of the other insurers out there. And the claims process that I've found with the insurance companies that I'm with is not that difficult to do. And I have claim for building insurance and I have claim for car insurance, etc. And generally speaking, I expect to keep all of my policies with the one company, unless I really don't get a great deal. And therefore, when I bundle the policies, generally speaking, they offer me a discount. And that's really important to me because I think, you know, I want to get the best deal that I possibly can. But at the same time, I want to make sure, um, you know, that I bundle as much as possible. And I ask them, I'm with you for the last 10 years for all of my car and home building and contents insurance. So give me a better deal. What's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to say no. What's the best that's going to happen? You're going to get your way and hopefully you get your deal. So hopefully this clarifies my standard process in terms of renegotiating, particularly with insurance companies. Most of the time it works out. Some of the times it hasn't worked out. So for example, recently for a 20 minute phone call while I was driving, I saved around $250 on my policies for car and home and building contents. And that equates to about $750 per hour of saving. 
So money saved, in my view, is money earned. So what do I do? I take $750 from my bank account and I immediately invest it. I don't waste that $750, which I've now saved, and I don't buy anything else with it. Now to the main topic of active versus passive income. Now, this topic was inspired by a recent conversation I had with a healthcare worker whose main aim of achieving financial independence revolved around using their current active income to invest in assets which create capital appreciation, but also a passive income in the long run. And essentially, this is what most financial independence people are trying to achieve, and there are many more routes to achieve the same goal. First of all, what is income? Now, there are various definitions to this, but I'm going to go with the ATO definition, the Australian Tax Office for overseas listeners. So what is the definition? Now, surprisingly, a lot of people don't actually know what an income is. So the ATO classifies income as three different types. A, accessible income, B, exempt income, and C, taxable income. Now, income can be earned by spending time on work, that is having a material participation, or can be in the form of goods or services, or can be from investments. Now, generally speaking, gifts, prizes are not considered income. So if you win the lotto, for example, it's tax-free, but you do need to declare it during your taxation so the ATO knows about it. Now, the main reason for this is if you invest your lotto income into assets that create more income, that income that you've created is taxable. So the ATO will want their share. So what is accessible income? It's what you pay tax on if you earn money than more than the tax-free threshold. So there's a caveat here, which I'll discuss when I get to the taxable income portion. Now, currently the tax-free threshold sits at $18,200. And some examples of accessible income are salaries and wages, tips and gratuities, car, travel, travel allowances, laundry allowances, etc., etc. Now, for some doctors and some nurses, if you get CME, that's continuing medical education money paid into your wages, that's accessible and that'll show up in your payslip. So that is a earned income. Interest from bank accounts is also considered um, accessible income. Dividends from your investments is accessible. Bonuses and overtime payments. Pension income. Yes, if you receive a pension, even though it's government money, you need to declare it. Rental income. This is just a sample of some of the accessible incomes um, that you can get, and it's not an exhaustive list. So what types of income are exempt from tax? So the tax-free threshold, any earnings which is under the threshold is tax-free. When you fill out the ATO pink sheet of paper, sometimes that's done online and you tick want to claim the tax-free threshold, they will automatically do this for you. Now, if you have an ABN, then you'll need to do this at the time of tax returns, usually at the end of the financial year. You need to claim that tax-free threshold back. Some types of education payments are tax-exempt. For example, during my medical school, I was on a scholarship, which was tax-free. Bursaries are also tax-free. Some forms of government pensions and payments can also be tax-free, such as invalidity payments. It's because a pay of an employee termination payment and usually has a taxable component and a tax-exempt component as well. Disability support payments if the person is under age, uh, age pension age. Childcare subsidies, care allowance, ADF personnel payments, etc. if they're overseas, that's all considered exempt from taxation. And then what is then taxable income? This is the income you pay tax on. That is, your accessible income is your total income. Then you have to take into account deductions, which are legal, 
and whatever is left over, that is your taxable income. The deductions, now, this is a whole different ballgame. Now, I've done an entire tax series from episode 94 to 99 under my previous name, Devaraga Personal Finance, and I really get some geeky concepts on there, some of the things you can deduct, particularly for healthcare workers especially. Um, And of course, that was recorded way back in 2020. So if you want to listen to that, you may want to go back and listen to it if you're worried, you know, if if, if you're worried about your tax deductions, you want to learn more about it. Uh, But just be aware that that was recorded in 2020. Some of the taxation uh, items may have changed. So the tax laws, uh, you know, may have changed. So you need to do your own due diligence and speak to a qualified accountant. But I really go through a lot of geeky concepts in that one. And it's important to highlight that deductions are from your assessable income. So you can reduce your taxable income. Now, the deductions is not to deduct your actual tax that you have to pay. And that's something actually a lot of people get confused about. So to highlight these principles, let's use an example. Amy is an IT specialist who works for a public hospital. She gets paid a salary, which is deposited to her account fortnightly. So yearly, it's about $100,000 plus super. She does salary package with the hospital and she maximises that. She has investments outside of her superannuation. She has one rental property, fully paid off, which provides her a rental income of $18,000 per annum before expenses. Her expenses are council rates, maintenance, real estate fees. That occupy about $5,000 per annum. She has a stock market portfolio worth about $250,000 per year, and she notices roughly a 3% dividend rate, which provides her with a dividend income of $7,500, which then is grossed up to $10,714 because her dividend is fully franked with attached franking credits of $3,200. These are also rough figures here, and her portfolio expenses is around 0.5%, which is around $12,500 per year. This is her cost of ownership of her stock portfolio. Now, she doesn't have any tax exemption income, and she does qualify for the tax-free threshold. So, what is her total assessable income? And the rough calculations are her total wage, which is $100,000, her rental income, which is $18,000, a dividend income, which is $10,714, so it's around $128,714. These are all rough figures here, okay? Her deductions is the stock portfolio expenses, which is $12,500, and her rental and her maintenance expenses, which is around $5,000 for a rental property. And of course, she's eligible for her tax-free threshold, which she'd like to claim, which is $18,200. Her salary packaging amount is maximised $11,000. That's also counted as a deduction. Therefore, her total taxable income is $128,714 minus $17,500 minus $11,000 minus $18,200, which works out to be around $82,014, and that is her taxable income. So she's got all of her deductions, all of her salary packaging, and her tax-free threshold completely negated from her total assessable income. And her tax bill comes to around $17,681. Now, she then applies the franking credits she's received, remember? So the franking credits is $3,200, so she applies that to a total tax bill, So then her taxable income, sorry, her taxation, beg your pardon, becomes from $17,681 minus $3,200, which is $14,481. Notice the major difference, the deductions, the salary packaging, the franking credits makes to her overall tax status. 
Now, she's trying to make her life as tax-effective and efficient as possible, but she isn't trying to do anything too much which may get her into trouble. Now, these are all rough figures, so hopefully that clarifies the types of income according to the ATO. So then, what is active income? Now, these definitions are not on the ATO definitions, they're more of financial principles, so just be aware that ATO doesn't really classify these very well. Active income is where you perform active duties to earn an income. Now, this is called material participation, which is more of an American definition, but it sounds good and it kind of just makes clearer sense. Now, what is material participation? This can be from wages, can be from actively being involved in a business, whether you're self-employed or contributing to a business. For example, a physio who works in a practice which he or she owns as well, but also has other physios that work in that practice as contractors. It can be from active stock market trading and options trading or even crypto trading, can be from active real estate development, and can be from commissions, tips or gratuities. Now, I tried to find the definition equivalent of material participation in Australia, but couldn't really find it. So if any accountants listening to this, feel free to contact me or post it on the My Millennium Medical page if you want to. In America, I think it qualifies as working for around 100 hours per year, roughly. I'm not sure what it is in Australia. So let's use an example here to highlight this principle of active income. Now, in the previous example, Amy was an IT professional working in a public hospital. She had an income of $100,000 at work, but also she had other sources of income, namely stock market dividends and rental income. So in that case, if Amy outsources her property management to a real estate company who do majority of the management and Amy only gets involved in some decisions, we can classify her income source as active IT wage job semi-passive real estate income or rental income, and more passive is stock market dividend income. Now, I'll get to passive income later in this episode. Now, Amy decides to do some after-hours on-call IT work for a private enterprise to make some extra cash. This is also considered active income. Therefore, you can think of active income as income derived from actually working for it. Earned income, i.e., is another definition, or trading time for income. Tony Robbins explains this really, really well. He says, we're all financial traders, yet we don't realise. When we get up in the morning and go to work and trade our expertise and our skill set and get paid for it, that is a financial transaction. You are trading time for an income. And trading time for income is possibly the worst possible way of earning an income. Fundamentally, to achieve financial independence, we need to use the income generated from trading time for income to invest in assets which rise in value and produce an income. Therefore, now you're delving into the whole passive income philosophy. So what are some of the good things about active income? Now, money isn't everything. I know a guy who regularly says money is a tool. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but more importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Trading time for income or having active income may provide enjoyment sense of purpose, sense of dignity, routines, and mental peace of mind. To be honest, when I have a day off, I do get a bit anxious as there is no structure. For me, I prefer structure. I prefer routines. I like to do things in a set way at a set time. I do have some flexibility, like when I'm on holidays, but during work times and work days, I prefer a routine. Cash flow. With active income, you tend to have routine cash flow. Money keeps coming in consistently. An active income is generally more reliable and mostly is not affected by week-to-week economics, but can be affected by year-to-year economics and global economic cycles. 
and the returns for effort is usually instant, so there's more of a gratification. If you work a public holiday, the next pay cycle, you're going to get paid the public holiday rates. You feel good about yourself. That's the advantage of having an active income. And it provides stability and opportunity to invest that income into assets of your choosing. What are some of the bad things about active income? You need to physically trade time for income. And we know that time is a non-renewable resource. We all have a finite time in our lives, so we need to resource allocate it appropriately. So working for money means we will miss out on all other aspects of life, kids and family. Now, the second thing is salaries generally have a ceiling for most people. Often it's grade-based. An example is if you're a nurse working on the floor as a nurse, there are grades associated with that. And you can't earn more over the award based on an income per unit time. You can work more and get paid more over time, but again, back to square one in terms of trading time for income. And lastly, active income is harder as you get older. Now, a lot of people tell me, Dev, I could have done trade school and made more money than what I'm doing right now. It doesn't work like that. Here's why. I speak with tradespeople all the time in my profession as a doctor. Often it's time when they arrive to see a doctor due to medical conditions or injuries. Most commonly in the emergency, it's lacerations or fractures. So some of the things is exertional shortness of breath that they come to see their GP about or chronic joint pains. It can be a very physically demanding work. Now, as a 28-year-old concreter, sure, easy enough to work 10 hours a day to make a good living. Try that at the age of 48 years of age. It becomes a lot harder and harder. Now, compare this to a healthcare worker who works in nursing homes as a PCA or even as a nurse. It's physically demanding work. Now, compare that to a nurse who works for Nurse on Call, which is non-physically demanding, but maybe more mentally demanding. But they may have coping mechanisms to enable them to work for longer hours or longer timeframes. So it's not as simple as I could have done a trade and made $300,000 per year. Think about the longevity of the profession. Even for doctors, surgeons, for example, often it's difficult work, long hours, standing long periods of time. Anesthetics, on the other hand, sitting job, not as physically taxing, I would argue the longevity of an anaesthetist is higher than a surgeon on average. So that's active income and that's income in general. Before we go on to the next topic of passive income, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We're now back and let's move on to passive income. And then I want to finish up with a concept called income per unit time. For healthcare workers especially, this is a crucial concept to master and understand. So what is passive income? This is also called unearned income. That is income which is derived without material participation. Income that flows usually from assets which work for you and produce you an income. What sort of income can be deemed passive? So rental property income, if you're not a real estate developer, shares or ETF portfolio income via dividends, business income, whereby you have invested money into a business and have someone else do the day-to-day operations, bank deposits like term deposits, interest generated uh, from those term deposits can be deemed passive income, parking space rentals, um, big property, particularly uh, in Melbourne and Sydney, although COVID has possibly ruined that um, ruin that yield for those parking space income because a lot of people don't actually go to the city to work anymore. Internet related income, podcasting, YouTube, blogs. Now, technically, it's not entirely passive though, as there's work involved. But once an episode is aired, an article is released, it's perpetual and it's potential to earn passive income thereafter. Online shops such as uh, automated ones like Etsy or eBay, again, not always passive. Education courses online. Personally, I write questions for fellowship exams and general practice and sell them via a private company. And I get paid each time someone subscribes to it. And I do a lot of teaching on the side as well. So I monitor the questions and answers yearly and update them as much as possible. Mostly it's passive as I focus mainly on the topics and concepts rather than specific clinical conditions. Now, the reality is nothing is truly passive. Everything has a level of work involved. So I don't tend to think of passive income really exists, but I believe that passive income means you're putting less effort to generate an income, which you would have to put more effort to generate that said income if you were to do it actively. That's all it is. It's the amount of effort that you put in. So if you put a lot of effort into generating an income, that is not passive. That is more active income. Now, The stock market dividends, although they may appear passive, you still need to monitor the market sometimes and add more money in, and this is still considered a level of effort. So there's nothing truly passive when it comes to passive income. There are degrees of pacificity when it comes to passive income. Pacificity, I don't even know if that's a word, but anyway, we'll take that one for this episode. So what are the pros of passive income? Now, it provides income diversity. Diversification of income streams and creating multiple income streams is just as important as diversifying your investments. If passive income is invested, it tends to produce more passive income and the compounding effect can be phenomenal over the long term. Theoretically, unlimited ceiling of income. What are the bad things about passive income? Nothing is really passive, as I explained before. You need to put in some effort, usually a once-off at some point. So you got to be aware of this term passive income. Just remember, there's nothing truly passive. Passive income needs some level of effort. And it's just that level of effort is less trading time for income. You may need upfront capital for which you need earned income. So you need active income to be able to create passive income. 
There are limitations on passive income streams. For example, if your profession is a doctor, you can't really create a passive income being a doctor treating patients, unless theoretically you have artificial intelligence robots who do all the work with no oversight from humans, which is really unrealistic even in the year 2022. Having said this though, I went to a conference once where the medical profession most at risk of automation is radiology. Basically, Microsoft and other tech companies are already working on AR software to read radiology scans like MRIs and CTs, given majority are actually normal. So radiologists are getting a bit nervous at the moment. Now, becoming de-skilled and lazy in your profession, that's a really bad thing about passive income. Imaging, you know, imagine doing all this training as a healthcare worker and losing your skills. It's a risk. But I've spoken to many healthcare workers, particularly recently, who probably wouldn't mind hanging up the boots in 2022, given what's happened over the last three years. So which one is better? I tend to think passive income is better for me, but for the vast majority of people, we need some sort of active income to supplement. So the aim is to use the active income and invest it wisely to generate capital growth and passive income. That's why I love the stock market and index funds. Every quarter I get dividends, which is automatically reinvested. And hopefully one day that dividend check will completely replace my active income. That's the goal. And I will still continue to be a doctor and possibly work. And work means not paying the bills. Work becomes more meaningful at that time. Ironically, since March 2020, for me, I've built enough passive income to reduce my work hours. I actually did. But Now I'm busier than ever before because what tends to happen is people who want to achieve FI or financial independence don't necessarily want to retire early completely, which is why I disagree with the RE component, but I agree with the FI component. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an understanding about active income and passive income and income as a whole. Now, before I finish up, I want to really talk about this concept called income per unit time. This is my favorite part of the podcast. Now, I was assisting a private case with surgery many, many years ago as a junior doctor. This was when the anaesthetist and I started talking about money. The surgeon was just too busy operating. The anaesthetist introduced me to the concept of income per unit time. He explained it that every hour in your day that you work, you need to make sure you maximise your income. What does that mean? It means ensure you get the most bang for your unit of time. Now, in this case, we often measure things per hour. Let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is a ward clerk at a hospital. She's happy to work shift work. As per her reward, she gets paid more during night shifts, weekends, and after 5pm. She informs her manager she's happy to fill in for gaps at these times. It turns out other ward clerks have families and other commitments or simply don't prefer to work those unsociable hours. So if Amy worked one hour during the daytime, she may get paid $30 per hour. But the same hour between 6pm and midnight, she might be getting paid $45 per hour. Now, I don't know the real hourly rate for ward clerks at this stage, so I'm just making up these figures, but essentially the concept is the same. You maximise your income per unit time, use that to invest it, and thereby generating a level of passive income which adds to your income per unit time, and the cycle continues. So it turns out, while the anaesthetist was working in the operating room during breaks, he wouldn't just eat lunch or dinner or whatever. He'd be doing property research, property deals, or investing in the stock market, because he wanted to maximise every hour in his daytime. Once you understand that, it just makes things a lot easier. 
we focus on so much effort on fee reductions, superannuation fees, investing, returns, we sometimes forget we can actually make more money. Making more money is not bad. Yes, you pay taxes, but you still make more money. Now, before I finish up, there's a final point to all this. Earned income is taxed worse off than investment income, not necessarily unearned income. This is a point of contention in a lot of countries where quote-unquote rich people benefit from the generous tax schemes which favour investment income versus earned income. That's a socio-political argument which is a bit beyond the scope of the episode. This is a money podcast for people who want to learn about money, effectively invest their money, and hopefully change from a predominantly active income stream to more of a passive income stream. So that's about it for this episode. Here's a recap. Income, what is it? Types of income, accessible, tax-exempt, and taxable income. Deductions, what are they? Active versus passive income, the pros and cons of both. And lastly, income per unit time, try and maximise it. Thanks very much for listening. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using, or leave a five-star rating on all platforms, even better. Please leave a positive review. I love reading reviews and it really helps me uh, better the podcast, better the topics, the more feedback that I get. The more ratings and more reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So that's useful to spread the message of financial literacy. So thank you for those that have already done that. My name's Dev Raga and this is My Millennial Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.